This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. How should a portfolio seek to deliver income to an investor? By maximizing dividend yield? Total return? Or perhaps through an endowment model that tries to keep capital from drawing down over time? Our guests today, who manage three very different income strategies, agree that a balanced approach is key to a robust income strategy. This is Simple But Not Easy, a podcast about investing and behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. I'm Drew Carter. Today, we continue our series of panel discussions from a recent event we sponsored here in Chicago. This discussion focuses on delivering income in a low-yield market environment, and our panel of portfolio managers addresses the importance of global exposure and downside protection in their strategies. Leading today's discussion is Michelle Ward, Portfolio Manager at Morningstar Investment Management, who appeared on episodes 17 and 18 of Simple But Not Easy, our Women in Finance episodes titled Better Decision Making Through Diverse Opinions. So over to Michelle. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Michelle Ward, and I'm a Portfolio Manager on the investment team, and I'm excited to be moderating a panel this morning on our best ideas for generating income. Uh, We are joined today by both our in-house experts that manage portfolios uh, focused on generating income, as well as um, a sub-advisor to one of our mutual funds that runs an income-oriented strategy for us. Um, And just before I introduce the panelists, I did want to mention we're going to save a few minutes at the end of the session for Q&A, so be sure to to save those um, so you can ask any of our panelists uh, towards the end. Uh, So directly to my left is uh, Raul Sharma, who has joined us um, graciously from New York City to be here today. Um, He is a portfolio manager at Schaefer Cullen Capital Management, and he's been in the investment business for over 20 years. Um, He joined Schaefer Cullen in 2000 as a research analyst and became co-portfolio manager of the International Emerging and Global Equity Strategies in 2001. Um, Hong Chung, uh, to my left, is an associate portfolio manager for Morningstar Investment Management. She manages income investment strategies as well as our target risk portfolios using ETFs. She's a member of the U.S. Fixed Income Asset Class team, and prior to joining the investment team in 2011, she was also an operations associate um, for Morningstar Investment Services. And then finally, we have George Metro, who is a portfolio manager for Morningstar Investment Management on the dividend select equity portfolio. Um, Prior to joining MIM, he was a portfolio manager and equity analyst at Parrot Capital Management for more than a decade. So thanks again to all the panelists for joining me this morning. Um, Before we dive into the specific questions, I thought it would be useful for each of the panelists to give a brief overview of the income-oriented strategies that they manage and their philosophy around uh, generating income. Uh, So maybe, George, I'll, I'll start with you. Sure. Good morning. Thank you, Michelle, for the introduction. Uh, As Michelle said, my name is George Metro. I'm the portfolio manager for the Dividend Select portfolio here uh, at Morningstar. Uh, It's within our Select Equities group. And the way that we go about trying to um, generate income and the philosophy that we use in, in implementing the strategy is really, I think, captured in our mandate. And the mandate states that we're trying to deliver a portfolio Uh, that provides for robust, reliable, and growing stream of income within the context of providing superior risk-adjusted total returns. So it's a bit of a mouthful, and I can break that down briefly and touch on those elements. So first of all, in terms of robust, we're targeting a portfolio that yields 3 to 5% in terms of a dividend yield. Today, we're right around 4%, so we're squarely on target there. And that's a comfortable spread above the broader market if you define that by, like, the S&P 500, which is currently yielding 2%. We're a little bit double the yield of the broader market. In terms of reliability, we focus on companies that are competitively advantaged, that are high quality, have good strong fundamentals, strong balance sheets, highly cash generative. And we think that that provides for durability in their cash flows over the long run. And it's those cash flows that will inevitably support our dividend, make the dividend reliable, which is paramount to us. In terms of growth, we're also trying to provide an income stream that does grow over time. We're targeting growth in excess of the rate of inflation because we believe that that would provide investors 
the opportunity to have real gains in their purchasing power, uh, which we find to be important as well. And we're doing that, again, within the context or caveated by um, providing superior risk-adjusted total returns, so focusing on both of those elements. So that's kind of the broad overview of, of what we do in the dividend select portfolio, and I'm sure we'll get into more of that as we go on. Okay, Tang. Cool. So we manage multi-asset income strategies here uh, in Morningstar Investment Management. Uh, so depending on the needs that investors have for a specific income, we have two types of strategy designed for different investors. So we have what we call endowment type income strategy. That is our multi-asset income strategy and a multi-asset high income strategy. For this type of uh, strategies, we are aiming to generate a certain level of income above cash over a certain period of time, while at the same time maintain your principal value. So for multi-asset income strategy, the income goal is to generate cash plus 2% to 4% income over a full market cycle. And for multi-asset high income strategy, the income goal is to generate cash plus 3% to 5% um, over a full market cycle. And um, so you, what you will get from endowment-like strategy is you will get a somewhat steady but kind of varying income level over time, but at the same time, we're shooting to maintain your principal. On the other hand, we have the decumulation type of strategy, which is our retirement income strategy. So this type of strategy is really designed for people who are entering the retirement stage, who are already in the retirement stage. Uh, they want to get a steady income stream. Um, so in order to do that, uh, we have a targeted payout ratio uh, for, four, for the four portfolio within the retirement strategy, depending on your income need. But you will be tapping into your principal over time. Um, so for example, for the retirement income long range, we're saying that you can, uh, the investor can take out 4% of your initial portfolio value each year for the next 20 year. And by the, by the end of that 20 year, you should feel comfortable that you will have, still have money left in your portfolio. You won't run out of money before that. So that's the difference between the two types of strategy. And we use Morningstar Fund to manage um, both strategy. So that's sort of an overview of our income strategy. Okay, thanks, Hong. Raul? Uh, Schaefer Cullen is a uh, value style investment manager based in New York. Um, we manage global equities, uh, primarily with a dividend focus. We really have three objectives within our strategies. We want to outperform the market over a full market cycle. We want to have better than average downside protection and lower volatility. And we want to generate a high income stream that has good growth potential. Uh, in our global portfolios, we're targeting about a 5% dividend yield. And we use a fairly straightforward process. We screen for a value in dividends. So we screen for low PE, high dividend yield, and above average dividend and earnings growth rate. We then do fundamental research on these uh, dividend paying value stocks to identify what we think are the best investments with certain biases towards things like quality, transparency, earnings growth. Uh, we hold the stocks in a more concentrated manner. We're holding about 25 to 35 stocks. Uh, we have very low turnover, so our costs tend to be low. And then most of our sells, in terms of our sell discipline, tend, tend to be value-driven. So in a perfect world, we're buying stocks when they're in the bottom quintile uh, by PE or the top quintile by dividend yield of the investment universe, holding them as they appreciate, and then selling them as they get into the fourth or certainly the fifth most expensive uh, quintiles. And then the most important thing about what we do is not straying from the discipline. Even in, during times like this when value might be uh, out of favor, uh, we're, we're very well known to be to, to stay to the discipline and not drift and start buying uh, growth stocks just because uh, everyone else is. Okay, great. Thank you. And so hopefully that uh, background provides good context as we go through some of the questions today on, on opportunities and risks that, that the portfolio managers are finding as they're seeking to generate income. So George, one thing that you know comes up a lot with uh, clients and their advisors is what is the difference between total return and income investing? What are the pros and cons to each? Um, so could you talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, is there one that's better or worse for, for portfolios? Uh, sure. Um, I, I mean, that's an interesting question to kind of set it up between total return and income. And I'm sure there are ardent supporters of both, people that prefer to maximize their income, people that prefer to maybe uh, have more of the uh, um, total return come through capital appreciation. I, I can't speak for, for everyone in terms of what they should do in their portfolio. I can, I can speak about what, how we try and answer this question in the strategy that we're managing here in the dividend select portfolio. And I, I think that if you go back to the mandate I just mentioned a second ago when I introduced the portfolio, say, you know, on one hand, we're trying to deliver this robust, reliable, growing stream of income, and that's really pushing us 
toward maximizing the income. That's focusing on the income generation element of the portfolio, whereas it was caveat, it was again within the context of superior risk adjusted total returns, which is saying you need to make sure you're focused on the capital appreciation, the total return element uh, as well. And those, those have a natural tension to them, and that's done in a sense by design. We think that that's a useful kind of natural tension for there to be. If we wanted to maximize income exclusively, you could do that relatively effortlessly, right? You could go out and just rank order the universe of securities and buy all the top yielding stocks. That would be a method to achieve that. I don't think it would work very well. It wouldn't be a very thoughtful portfolio you've constructed and probably would lead to a lot of risks and pitfalls that are pretty obvious, right? You'd probably be concentrated in certain sectors. You might be buying more distressed assets than you would than you'd want. You'd see an 8% yield uh, that really the market was pricing a 75% dividend cut in short order. But on the other hand, if you myopically focus just on capital appreciation, you might have you know, some other pitfalls where you're buying securities that are, are high growth and have high valuations to go with them. So we don't think exclusively focusing on either is the right way. You need to marry them together and, and build a portfolio that accounts for both. And so you know, as an example, you can buy a 5% yielding security that's going to grow at 5%, and that'll deliver a 10% total return. Or you can buy a 3% yielding security that's going to grow at 7 and you're hoping for 10 total return, or you can buy one that doesn't pay a dividend at all and is going to grow at 10%. Those are all equivalent total returns. So I don't think that the question is between total return and income. Our goal, our real focus is to deliver superior risk-adjusted total returns. That is, that's the real goal. And the question is, where on the spectrum do you lie in terms of how much of the return do you want through the income channel? And the way that we've answered that question in designing our strategy is we want a 3 to 5% yield. So that's our yield target. So we're in a sense saying we want that portion of the return of the total return coming through income. And we think that's useful. That's like a useful constraint for us in a number of ways and gets into a whole different question about why dividend investing is important and why we should even have an income element. But we think that's a useful constraint in trying to achieve the real goal, which is maximizing total returns. It's helpful. Raul, do you have anything that you would, would add to that when you think about sort of the income goal while also thinking about the total return? Yeah, I think taking a balanced approach, kind of as George was describing, is very important and not getting too focused on just one factor, whether it be valuation or dividend yield or dividend income. Because when you do that, you tend to make yourself vulnerable to certain market environments. So if you're just looking at high yield, uh, you're probably getting into a portfolio that's going to be very sensitive to interest rates. And if rates go up, you might um, you know, fare quite poorly. Or if you just look at things like dividend growth, you're going to compromise on your yield. Uh, if you look at just valuation, you could compromise on things like quality or corporate governance. So uh, taking a balanced approach to uh, income investing, we think, is very important. Okay. Hong, so you, you co-manage multi-asset income and multi-asset high income, as you described, you know, sort of the endowment, uh, the endowment model there. Can you differentiate between the two mandates and then also describe sort of how you seek to achieve those mandates within the portfolio construction process? Sure. So for... If you think about income investing and how to construct an income portfolio, typically we think that we need three sort of um, the block um, building block bucket within each income strategy, multi-asset income strategy. So we'll have the equity bucket, and we'll have the credit bucket, and we'll have the interest rate bucket. So then we look at all the income-generating asset classes and trying to fit them into each of the bucket. And each bucket actually serve a different role in terms of uh, the overall portfolio construction. So uh, we have the equity bucket is really responsible for the capital growth. If you think about, especially for the endowment model like multi-asset income and multi-asset high income, we're assuming the investor actually stripping off the income from the strategy. So if you only have fixed income in the portfolio over time, they're going to uh, they're going to withdraw the, a big portion of their total return, and the principal is going to decline. So you need that equity portion in the strategy to help grow the equity, to grow the portfolio, so that it can last over time. And then you have the credit bucket. That's really the engine for income generation. And typically, you will see high-yield corporate bonds. You will see emerging market debt. You will see bank loans in this bucket. And that's really where you get most of the income from. And lastly, you have the rate interest rate bucket, where this is really we you'll find high-quality bonds, treasury bonds, and some of the securitized products here. Um, this is really providing a hatch against the credit risk and equity risk that you are taking in the rest of the strategy. So if you think about the three bucket and 
what we have is we have the three Morningstar funds that are designed to fill each of the buckets. So we have the Morningstar Global Income Fund, which really serve as part as an uh, equity bucket. It has more than uh, a big chunk of the allocation to the equity there. It, so that's really the driver of the capital growth. And then we have the Morningstar multi-sector bond, which is um, a, a bond fixed income fund that invests in the credit, more credit sensitive of the fixed income market. So we currently we have high yield in there. We have uh, emerging market debt in there. So that's really driving the income generation. And lastly, we have the Morningstar defensive bond fund, which uh, which really fill that interest rate bucket. So that sort of gave you the protection against, you know, the credit uh, events work, equity sell-offs. Um, so that's sort of how we construct an income portfolio. And depending on the income goal, um, the income level we're trying to achieve for the different strategy will have different allocation to those three funds. So for example, for multi-asset income, I mentioned the income goal is cash plus 3% to 5%, which is slightly higher than the multi-asset multi income strategy. So in order to achieve that higher income, we allocate more to the multi, uh, Morningstar multi-sector bond, which is, like I mentioned, the, the income engine uh, from income generation perspective. And we would have um, a more equity exposure in multi-asset high income strategy as well, sort of to help drive the capital growth over a longer, sort of slightly longer time horizon. Um, and as a result, we'll have less rates exposure in the multi-asset uh, high income strategy. So that's sort of the, on the strategy level, that's how we can allocate across different Morningstar funds to achieve different income goal. And also I want to mention that the same investment team that managed the multi-asset income and multi-asset high income strategy also managed the underlying Morningstar funds. So when we think about, you know, interesting opportunity across the inv investment universe, we have multiple levers to pull. We can think about whether it's the best to implement in the under in underlying the Morningstar fund, or it's better implemented on the fund level. So we have different tools that we can use to really implement the best idea from the income universe. Okay, great. And as Hong talked about using Morningstar Global Income to really get exposure to those uh, the high dividend paying equities, the uh, portfolio that Rahul runs at Schaefer Cullen is a big part of that Morningstar Global Income. So hopefully it's clear how some of those pieces tie together. Um, this question is for George and Raul. Um, particularly in today's environment, there's really no shortage of headlines risks, whether it's about you know, what's going on with the trade impact or um, seeing you know, challenges in, in the oil industry because of you know, the issues with Saudi Arabia, et cetera. There's you know, things in the healthcare industry. There's always you know, some sort of headlines that, that makes stocks you know, go up or go down very quickly in any given day. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of how that headline risks impacts or doesn't impact some of the stocks that you invest in and sort of how you manage around that risk through a market cycle? Maybe, George, we'll start with you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll start like on the individual stock side that you mentioned there. Um, you know, there are always news headlines coming out, um, things that would be, you know, you would infer are pretty bad news for a company. They're going to be a decrement to, to the value. It's product liabilities, lawsuits, all kinds. Of, you mentioned, you know, healthcare, the opioid crisis mm -hmm. recently. There's a lot of things going on. Um, it doesn't change the way that we manage the portfolio. I think there, there are two things that we think about. First of all, it's assessing those risks and, and what their potential liabilities really are, right? And you're baking that into your estimate of fair value for a company. And what I would really try and impress upon people is that the intrinsic value of a company tends to move a whole lot less than the gyrations of the stocks. You mentioned the stocks moving up and down a lot, and they certainly do. And we think that they're probably moving a whole lot more than the actual underlying value of the company. So we're trying to figure out you know, what the liability is, not whether it exists or not, or whether we should trade around, but just what it is and how it's moving around our estimate. So you, know, you might estimate that it's a $5 billion liability and it's being 10. The way that you can combat that really is by part of our process um, of really instilling the idea that we need to be purchasing securities or holding securities at a discount to that intrinsic value estimate that we've assigned to the company. So it's this margin of safety that helps protect against really two things. One, that we're just wrong, right? That like we said, uh, the liability is much more than we thought it was. So you can have an analytical error and you can just be wrong. Or secondarily, you, know, you could have a company that presume is clean and has no regulatory or legal issues and something does come up and something comes out of left field and you kind of put that into the bad luck category. So whether it's an analytical error or bad luck, 
We're trying to purchase and hold securities at a discount to what we think that they're worth, and we're baking in those liabilities to what uh, we think that estimate is. And that's how you can kind of combat some of that or mitigate some of that risk. Now, if I take the economic issue and the real macroeconomic recession, tariffs, things like this uh, that you asked about, it's a little bit of a different view. I think that the best way you can mitigate some of these risks is pivoting back to our strategy of buying high-quality companies that are competitively advantaged, that have strong fundamentals. And that's because those businesses are going to tend to actually, in my opinion, perform relatively better against their competitors in a weaker environment than they even would in a strong environment. Good businesses are going to be able to perform well, kind of no matter what the situation is. And so when you have a philosophy that uh, builds a portfolio around those businesses, I think that's the best way to mitigate that risk. Um, you know, during a recession or bear market, of course, we're going to be able to purchase securities at cheaper prices. That's an advantage. But I'm really focused on the businesses themselves being able to thrive in a down environment. You know, if you have a, a weak economy or a recession, a business that is a strong, competitively advantaged business is going to be able to, you know, potentially affect M&A and buy out a competitor that they had their eye on at a better price. Or they'll be able to lean on suppliers and get better working capital terms. Or they'll be able to just take market share when competitors who are weaker are unable to thrive in, in, a, in a challenging environment. So I think the best mitigant against economic risk, you know, we can't forecast recessions. We don't think anyone reliably can. I don't know when the next recession is going to start, how long it's going to be, how deep it's going to be, what the recovery is going to look like. So the way to mitigate those unknowns and things you can't control is focus on what you can control, and that's buying good businesses. Well, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely true that kind of geopolitical and macro concerns tend to weigh more on the markets these days when you think about things like trade wars or Brexit or problems in Europe or you know impeachment proceedings. Um, we seem to have more of that than in the past, but we have always had it in the past too. We've had you know uh, many different events, oil price shocks, high inflation, low inflation, uh, terrorist attacks, financial crises, and it really hasn't thrown off the value of uh, holding equities over the long term. That um, if, we, if, if you buy, as George is describing, good companies that can grow their earnings, there tends to be a very good correlation between earnings growth and uh, stock prices. So uh, I think more often than not, all these things are generally noise. And if you just focus on companies that can grow their earnings, um, you'll, you'll be just fine. I would say that as you get further outside of the US, um, country selection does become a lot more important. And in uh, emerging markets, for example, you do find uh, particularly risky situations from time to time in countries that might have uh, weak external positions, for example, where you can get massive currency depreciations that can then you know, wipe out the uh, income that you think you might be generating in your portfolio due to currency depreciations. Um, you see a lot of uh, binomial uh, political outcomes that occur with elections. Um, we've seen that this year in uh, Argentina, for example. So you do need to kind of tread a little bit more carefully in those kinds of markets. We tend to not like that type of uncertainty, so we tend to avoid uh, investing in those sorts of situations. Uh, or if we do choose to invest it, we often find companies that have uh, some sort of natural hedge uh, to the situation. So oftentimes, if you invest in a country, say, like Turkey, that has a weak external position where you get a lot of uh, kind of chronic currency depreciation, we tend to favor exporting companies um, that tend to actually benefit in that environment because their earnings are going up as they sell their products in dollars uh, and, and, and their costs are in uh, you know, the depreciating currency. A very similar phenomenon has happened in the UK with all the Brexit-related concerns. Um, we've tended to done quite well with our UK exposure despite Brexit because we've been more focused on global multinational companies that don't have a lot of domestic exposure and actually benefit when the pound uh, depreciates, which is what often happens when you have uh, Brexit concerns, uh, you know, kind of creating a risk-on environment. And given there, you know, obviously no lack of um, headline news and, and periods of volatility more recently, um, George, are there any sort of sectors or areas of the market or securities that have been sort of adversely impacted and maybe temporarily that have created, you know, opportunities? Sure. I think you even mentioned a couple of them when you asked the original question. I mean, you've certainly seen within healthcare, for instance, with the uh, opioid litigation that's happening in multiple jurisdictions have weighed on a number of the stocks, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical companies themselves or drug distributors, really anyone in that value chain that's been exposed to that liability. There's some questions and lingering concerns about the ultimate liability. Um, but there are idiosyncratic risks in almost every sector that's affecting one company or another at a given time. Um, there are companies, you know, industrial companies maybe have a, a chemical that uh, 
they're going to be facing some liabilities in the future over environmental damages, things like that. That's a very idiosyncratic, specific issue to one company that would pop up. Um, tobacco. Tobacco has been in the news a lot lately. We have exposure to the tobacco stocks in the dividend select portfolio. Um, a lot of this news around vaping, uh, for instance, and uh, potential bans there and what's going to happen on the regulatory front has weighed on stocks in particular like Altria, who has a stake in Juul. So there's a whole, you know, you could, I don't think you could go a, a sector without finding <laughs> some company that's facing some headline risk or some issue that's weighing on its valuation or, or, or its earnings stream in one way or another. You know, you could go banks, healthcare, energy, tobacco, like all the way down the list. Mm-hmm. I guess talking a lot about the, mar- the, the uncertainty, and I think, George, you mentioned, you know, trying to invest with the margin of safety. Raul, is there anything, you know, I know you avoid some of these areas that have you know, some of the very uncertain things, but other ways you try to manage some of the more uncertain risks within the portfolio? Uh, yeah, I mean, to the extent, you know, it has a, it makes earnings, uh, you know, outcomes that much more difficult to predict. We tend to have lesser exposure to those areas, but I think more from an opportunity perspective, we think that uh, really disruption is creating a lot of opportunities for uh, value investors like ourselves and, um, you, you know, also within portfolios that you can generate income in. You kind of have this confluence of three factors. You have uh, disruption, you have climate change, uh, and then you have industry consolidation, which has really uh, changed the demand profile for certain industries uh, that I think are being overlooked by investors. So, for example, if you look at the uh, uh, nickel mining, for example, it's a completely different business than it was 10 years ago because these days uh, nickel is such an important component in making electric vehicle batteries. Uh, so the demand profile for nickel producers has dramatically changed. Um, and so if you can identify companies that are selling that product, it's a very different business than it was 10 years ago. Uh, we think it will be a lot less cyclical. Uh, that should argue for higher multiples over a full market cycle for uh, companies like that. And you could find some very good uh, dividend-paying companies uh, in, the, in, the, in that uh, industry. Uh, similarly, semiconductors is another good example where things are very different now than, say, 10 years ago for semiconductor companies because they're not just going in PCs and smartphones anymore. They're going in, you know, literally everything. Autos are a big part of AI in cloud computing. So there's just a lot more applications for semiconductors than we had in the past. Uh, and this, again, argues for a less cyclical industry than what we saw maybe 10 years ago, which, you know, will allow for more sustainable and growing dividends, we think, going in the future. So these are some of the opportunities that we're targeting, and it's kind of a good example of how we as a value investor also play uh, disruption. Great. Um, switching gears a little bit, and I think we've heard a lot already in the last, you know, day or so about just how valuations in the U.S. are so tough. Um, so in a period where, you know, valuations are challenging, you know, both Hong and Raul, as you mentioned, manage, you know, global-oriented portfolios because you're investing, you know, both in U.S. and non-U.S. markets. So it'd be helpful if you could speak about the potential invest- uh, benefits of seeking income globally um, and sort of how you manage around that flexibility. So Hami, we'll start Yeah, with sure. You. So um, definitely, I think you definitely heard from other portfolio managers throughout the event yesterday and today that talk about um, the out the market outside the U.S., especially on the equity side, are more attractive. And when we look at our income strategy, if you look at multi-asset income and multi-asset high income, um, the 70% of the overall equity exposure are currently investing outside of the U.S. So if you look at um, the bucket that we uh, we currently like, uh, we have U.K. equity is uh, a high conviction, broad market exposure that we have in the income strategy. And I also have European Telecom as another one. And also, like Michelle mentioned, uh, Raul, which managed the, the Schiffer Collins sleeve, which is a subadvisor of the uh, Morningstar Global Income, they also have a strong focus on the outside U.S. market. And on the fixed income side, I think the sector that we like um, that generate great income is the emerging market debt. So if you think about uh, the overall fixed income landscape, the U.S. yield curve is still look more attractive compared to the other to the other developed market. But if you look beyond the developed market, and emerging market really provide um, interesting opportunity at the same time decent income. So that's sort of how like we structure the portfolio in terms of uh, the region and country. Okay, maybe you can talk about some of the benefits of having sort of the global purview and in investing in, in dividend paying equities. Sure, yeah. I mean, the reality is if you're going to try to get a high dividend uh, or high income stream in a global portfolio, it's very difficult to construct a large allocation to the U.S. because uh, from an equity perspective, equity income perspective, the yields are just so low. Um, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, many more opportunities. I mean, when you screen the world for 
uh, companies, for example, with dividend yields over 3%, you have about five times as many outside of the U.S. Uh, as in the U.S. Um, and so, uh, and then the other thing is when you look at the, uh, the yield on sovereign debt outside of the U.S., it's even lower than here. Um, so the yield gap is that much more attractive. So, you know, we have companies that are producing a, you know, a, a yield of about 5% uh, that are domiciled in countries that have sovereign bond yields of just, you know, about half of 1% on average. So not only is that a huge income gap, but it's also a great opportunity for those companies who can, you know, borrow at, you know, less than 1% reinvest in their businesses, which have, you know, earnings yields of 6 or 7 percent uh, and or, you know, make some sort of sensible acquisitions by borrowing at low, low costs and also doing it in a way where they're not becoming so risky, where they're taking on too much leverage. So um, it's a tremendous opportunity in terms of, you know, the yield gap that you get, um, the opportunity for companies to uh, create shareholder value by, you know, leveraging on lower rates. Uh, and then also you're getting yourself exposed to what we think is, you know, one of the best contrarian opportunities that, you know, we've really ever seen. Because if you look at, uh, you know, history, we've really never seen uh, the confluence of kind of style trends that we've seen in recent years in terms of international and underperforming the U.S. by such a large margin for such a long duration, and then also with uh, value underperforming growth so much. So you can really get a very nice exposure, high income, uh, and this very good contrarian opportunity to be exposed to international equities, to be exposed to value rather than growth, uh, you know, at a time when, um, you know, we've really never seen the extremes in terms of the performance of those style trends uh, relative to the past. So. Um, it's quite an interesting expo uh, exposure. We're kind of living in, a, in an age where you definitely have these speculative excesses, um, whether you look at, you know, the FANG stocks globally or you look at Bitcoin or, um, you know, you look at just negative yielding bonds, uh, you know, globally. We've never seen these kinds of speculative excesses, but there certainly are pockets of opportunity that we've also never seen before. And I would, I would suggest that, you know, international value and emerging market value um, is, is definitely that area. Uh, and it's nice to be able to get such a high uh, income generation component from those exposures as well. And Michelle, if I could actually ask for a little follow-up on that, because I'm curious yes, myself, if the higher yields you're seeing XUS are more a function purely of valuation, or if it's more uh, around the idea that management teams XUS tend to be more friendly on the dividend side in terms of a mix of their return of capital versus the U.S. where the total shareholder return might be closer, uh, but it's more heavily weighted to repurchases and share repurchases in the U.S. than it is uh, ex-U.S. Yeah, I think um, I think it, I think it's both. I think definitely valuations that you know, like I said, we've never seen international equities underperform the U.S. Uh, equities uh, by as large a margin or for as long as we've seen now. So they're they're quite cheap. That that makes the yields high. You, you definitely have I think a greater culture for dividends outside of the U.S. in many markets than you see in the U.S. If you look at places like the UK or Europe or even emerging markets like Taiwan or South Africa, they've just kind of always paid uh, higher dividends. Um, but then also, yeah, George, you definitely have less buybacks uh, outside, of the, uh, outside of the US. You're, you're seeing it pick up, so I think it's a good opportunity. I mean, we prefer uh, dividends to buybacks. We, we like when you know, companies do buybacks if their share price is correct dramatically, that, you know, you, you buy the shares when they're cheap. But unfortunately, the history uh, of, of buybacks, particularly in the U.S., has been the exact opposite, where people are always buying back at elevated multiples. And here we are again. They're doing it again, right? They're, they're doing it right now. Share buybacks are at record levels. Uh, even worse, they're doing it by taking on more leverage. So companies in the U.S. are taking on leverage to do buybacks at elevated multiples. That's typically, you know, a recipe for disaster. And so that's another reason why we kind of like this non-U.S. exposure that we uh, have in our portfolios. George, just to that point, is that something you're also seeing within sort of your universe of opportunities, and how are you kind of balancing and thinking about that risk? Yeah, I, I think that, as Raul mentioned, I mean, there's just a greater preference in the U.S. among corporate management teams to return a larger portion of capital to shareholders via the repurchase channel rather than through the dividend channel. Clearly, we're in favor of income as well, and completely share Raul's view of that. Repurchases are a perfectly appropriate use of... Um, uh, of capital when the shares are being repurchased below what we would feel is, is intrinsic value, right? That can add value. When they're purchasing shares above intrinsic value, that's value destructive. And like one of my biggest pet peeves, I think, ever is when a management team comes out and tells you at the beginning of the year, maybe on their fourth quarter report, this is how much stock we're going to buy this year. And the question is, well, how do you know where your stock is going to be over the next 12 months? You're just basically writing a check and saying we're going to buy it irrespective of the price, which we find to be really silly. Mm -hmm. 
And given the fact that you also invest you know, in the in emerging markets, can you talk a little bit about sort of the income landscape there in terms of you know sector composition? Does it tend to be a lot different than sort of the typical kind of dividend paying sectors within the U.S.? Yeah, I think I think emerging market equity income is um, probably one of the best kept secrets in terms of income generation that that one can find. And you know, people usually equate it to equate emerging markets and income with debt, but if you really look at the universe uh, of emerging market equities. It's quite high. The yields are much, much higher. I mean, we run dedicated uh, EM equity income portfolios that have yields uh, of over 5.5%. Um, and yes, you can get a very diversified exposure. So there's the only areas that you really can't get exposure to are things like the internet or like the FANG stocks. But you can still get a lot of really interesting technology exposure uh, in places like Taiwan or South Korea. Um, we're, we're overweight technology in those portfolios. Uh, and what's interesting about that exposure is you're often getting the exact same uh, exposures as the growth investors get by, you know, buying companies like Alibaba or Amazon. We're not buying those companies, but we're buying a lot of companies that are supplying to those companies. A company that might be selling a server to, you know, Alibaba or Microsoft, or, um, you know, and not only not only to those kinds of trends, but also to really, I would say, the the big mega thematic growth drivers that you know are happening in the world, whether it be electric vehicles, whether it be climate change. Uh, you can find really interesting exposures uh, of cheap, high-yielding equities. Uh, in emerging markets that are kind of helping to uh, supply to the leaders in these industries. Okay. And I have one more prepared question, and then we'll turn it over to the audience if they have any questions. Um, so I think you can't really talk about income investing without talking about the interest rate environment. And for you know many years now, we've been living through this environment with historically low interest rates outside the U.S. You know, a lot of a lot of debt is is actually neg neg negative yielding. Um, so maybe if you could talk about some of the challenges that you've, you've faced managing income portfolios through that environment and if there's any sort of adaptations that you've had to make um, as a result. So maybe, Hong, I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. I think it's very important to acknowledge that we're in a very challenging income generation um, period of time. Uh, if you think about, first of all, the overall rate has been very low for a long time, and that's sort of the anchoring rate for all the fixed income asset classes. So having that low rates is really hard for to find you know higher yielding uh, income sources within the fixed income space, and on top of that, we are also having a very flat yield curve. So if you think about yield curve, it's basically a line that show you the treasury yield, yield on different maturity uh, profile. So a flat yield curve basically meaning that um, a ten-year treasury yield generate the same yield as a two-year treasury yield does. So what we are seeing, like if you remember a, a month ago, there's all the headlines of an alarming title, like the reversion of the yield curve, the market is worried about recession risk, about that. And I think that has another implication in terms of income investing, because in the past, what you could do is you could lengthen your duration to pick up that positive term premium. And that term premium is not there anymore because of the flatness of the yield curve. So that's additional challenge for income generation. And, and on top of that, we also have a very uh, tightened credit level, meaning that you are, if you invest in a corporate bond high yield, you are not really compensated much by taking that credit risk. So combining all three, it's like this is a, it really suggesting a very challenging income generation um, environment for a multi-asset income strategy. And what we do here is that uh, we built this income environment income environment indicator where we t look at those factors on a monthly basis and we're trying to decide now it's a challenging market environment so we will allow us to be closer to the lower end of the income range that we uh, define for each strategy and also we really ask ourselves to really cast a wider net in terms in terms of the opportunity that um, can potentially generate uh, good income. Example would be UK equity, you know, European telecom, those are small, like sort of a niche market yet that you don't think about when you think about income investing. But those are sort of the bucket that are actually generate decent income and are trading at an attractive valuation. And also example would be emerging market debt, which is again another uh, example of, you know, outside of their traditional U.S. fixed income asset classes, emerging market debt's really uh, sort of standing out to generate decent income and trading at attractive valuation. So that's sort of like how we address this challenging income environment from a multi-asset income perspective. 
George, anything you'd add from the, the U.S. equity perspective? Yeah, I would agree with Hong that it, it does pose some challenges given the level of interest rates. You know, for us, the dividend select portfolio is going to have some yield sensitivity, right? At the end of the day, the, the pond we are fishing in is going to contain a lot of yield-sensitive securities. They're REITs, utilities, master-limited partnerships. These are securities that are priced off of interest rates, and with interest rates as low as they are today, that the challenge that we're facing on our end is, is valuation, mm -hmm. right? That stocks have been bid up to levels that we don't think are necessarily appropriate. So the best that we can combat that and mitigate that risk is to stay extremely disciplined on the price that we pay. We know that we're going to be accepting some interest rate risk. Our job is to make sure that we're being paid appropriately to accept that risk. And part of the way that you can that you can see this in our portfolio and the way that it's constructed is to, to look at like the sector weightings that we have in some of these interest rate sensitive uh, areas. So for instance, in utilities, our benchmark has 26% weight in utilities. We have eight. So that's a reflection of our views of the, the valuation challenges in that area. Um, conversely, in MLPs, midstream energy infrastructure, we have a double digit mid-teens weight in our portfolio versus a benchmark of 2%. So again, very different um, picture than the benchmark, which is a reflection of our bottom-up views of, of the securities and what they're offering to us in this more challenging environment. REITs would be another one. We're a double-digit weight in REITs versus zero in the benchmark. We think we have some you know, idiosyncratic advantages in the, in the REITs that we own. And so it's really just the bottom-up work. Are you getting paid to take the risk that you're going to be accepting? So casting a wider net, being a little more differentiated than, than the benchmark. Is there anything you'd add to that, Rahul, in ways you sort of manage through this challenging environment? Yeah, I think, I think one challenge, and I think if you, if, you, if you listen to all of us today, you know, one of our goals also is to have some sort of capital preservation or downside protection in these income-generating portfolios. And because uh, some of the historically defensive sectors have done so well because they're viewed as bond proxies, whether it be utilities or consumer staples, um, REITs, for example, these stocks are all at you know all-time highs, and uh, as George mentioned, not really cheap anymore. You really wonder whether these areas are going to be able to provide the defense that you've relied upon in the past. And so we're having to think a lot about that and kind of be creative about how we're going to get, um, how we're going to have a defensive exposure to while keeping our valuations down uh, in light of uh, you know how 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 well some of these stocks have performed and where their valuations at or. And, or, and also another factor, you know, the growth of passive, that, you know, you're certainly seeing, you know, a chase for yield globally, and a lot of that's coming through passive approaches into dividend ETFs or other ones, and these ETFs might be overweight, some of these very same sectors, so you've kind of had this herd-like behavior into these more defensive stocks, which is another reason why they may not be as defensive as they, you know, have been in the past. So um, thinking about, you know, how we're going to, achieve that objective to have better than average downside protection in the current environment uh, is, is, is a challenge that we uh, think about a lot. And the first question from the audience asked the panelists how they respond when one of their portfolio companies is in the news for the wrong reasons. Does a portfolio manager pay extra attention to that company? George Metro responds first. There's a very good uh, nickel company in Russia that, uh, that, we, that, that we think is a very good play on, on this sort of thing. And, um, uh, you know, another, I mean, so, th you know, that story is kind of, you know, playing out. Um, but even copper is, uh, copper is a very interesting uh, opportunity. We, we don't have any exposure yet, but we're, we're looking. Um, you know, there's a, there's a Bernstein analyst that, uh, you know, has this thesis on copper prices, you know, tripling over the next 10 years. Because if you look at how much more copper you need to do, uh, to make the environment, to meet the emissions targets that the governments uh, around the world have, uh, it, you're talking about a lot more demand when you have more wind farms and more, um, you know, all sorts of things, and also in, in electric vehicles. So uh, I think that's a, a mega theme. Like I said, the confluence of climate change, um, changes in industry composition, where you've seen a lot more consolidation, which, which could create a better industry structure, uh, and disruption, that um, we're seeing a lot of opportunities there. Paper packaging is another one, that, you know, paper packaging is a very different business than 10 years ago because of e-commerce. So all these boxes that we're getting, that's paper packaging that you didn't have before, and because of now the substitution of plastic um, packaging with paper packaging for environmental reasons. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, ideas there that we think are being overlooked by the market, and we're, you know, identifying a lot of those. The next question was about taking advantage of disruption, something Raul Sharma had raised earlier. 
How do you identify the companies that might be the winners from disruption? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really just kind of looking at the, ch the change in demand and, and then again, the change in industry structure. It's usually those two things where, you know, uh, if you look at paper, there's been, you know, huge consolidation, again, uh, amongst uh, global pulp producers uh, over the last 10 years. So there's just, you know, less players. Or if you look at semiconductors, if you look at memory semiconductors, there's really only three major players now versus, you know, say seven or eight 10 years ago. And then if you look at where memory semiconductors are being used, um, it's, uh, you know, there's been a huge explosion of applications. Or if you look at how paper might be used in the future for packaging or, um, you know, for different sorts of things. And then also finding companies that have, you know, avoided the negative impact of, of, of disruption. So the paper companies that realized 10 years ago that, you know, selling traditional paper, that that's going to be a horrible business. Those companies that right-sized their businesses, got their costs down, um, and, and got out of just selling, you know, free sheet paper uh, on time is, um, you know, or, so it's finding companies that have kind of been ahead of the curve and thinking about things. And, um, you know, we're also finding, you know, paper companies are doing things like now, you know, bioplastics and uh, biofuels. And so, you know, very, tap, very much tapping into uh, this whole climate change uh, initiative and theme, which, um, which, is, which is huge. I think that people uh, really need to think about the implications of, of, of climate change and the, and the changes in, you know, consumption and demand that it's going to produce and which companies are going to benefit from that. I mean, that's definitely, I think, one of the foremost themes um, you know, for the next 10, 20 years. The next question was for George Metro, and it was in two parts. How much more room does he think that REITs have to run? And what would it take for him to lower the level of cash in his portfolio? Um, on, on the REITs, um I, I can't. I can't give you a call on on where they'll run to or what valuation they'll reach. I, I would agree with you that they've been very strong performers um, as a group. Um, you can see in our actions, though. I think maybe what our views are a little bit, which is that uh, a lot of the selling that we've done throughout 2019 has been taking read exposure down. Uh, so while we still are overweight relative to the benchmark. Uh, we've sourced a lot of our capital from, and a lot of the cash, which is your follow-up question, from our REIT positions as we see the risk-reward in those individual positions diminish, right? Um, so that, actually, your second question is a very good follow-up on that, which is that the selling of some of those positions has inflated that cash balance up to that 8 9%. Um, I think a normalized level is, as you would imagine, probably somewhere in the low single digits, um, enough for you know maintaining some dry powder for some you know short term idiosyncratic opportunity. You want just a little bit of liquidity there to take advantage of something in the short term. Um, and what would it take to get there? It would take seeing those risk rewards come back uh, to be much more favorable than they are today. You know, not only in REITs but you know across any sector, we're, we're looking at individual companies on a bottom up basis. And when we find those opportunities, whether it's in REITs or it could be in any other sector, whether it's in industrials or technology where we're underweight. When we see those opportunities come back our way, the cash will be deployed. And the final question was about rates. Can rates go lower than they are today? And how would that affect central banks' ability to respond to a potential economic downturn? Yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. Um, you know, I would say there are some emerging markets that have not really done the kind of easing that we've done here in the U.S. or even more so in Europe or Japan that have a lot more flexibility in terms of manage, managing their monetary uh, policies. Um, I think in places like Europe, it's really just been horrible because, um, you know, we're of the opinion that what Europe needs is higher rates because banks are so much a larger part of the economy in Europe so much of a larger part of the uh, equity indices there. So if you really want the market to do better and the economy to do better, you really need to do something to help banks. And so negative rates is the last thing that the banks need. But yet this is what they've been doing for the last uh, eight or nine years. Um, but for our portfolio companies, we, we see it as a big opportunity because of two things are, you know, they're, you know, they're not negatively impacted by the lower rates like, say, banks are. We don't have a lot of exposure there. Uh, and then most importantly, they don't have a lot of leverage. So they could responsibly take on leverage at low rates to reinvest in their business. When you're doing what a lot of US companies are doing, that's what you really don't want to be doing. You don't want to be borrowing more than you've ever bought, borrowed before, doing more buybacks at you, than you've ever done before at valuations that are higher than they've ever been before. So the European companies and the non-US companies are, are doing the exact opposite in that regards, and so we feel pretty good about that. And that's our show for today. 
If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on Simple But Not Easy, let us know by sending an email to simple at morningstar.com. That's S-I-M-P-L-E at morningstar.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Drew Carter. So long for now. purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. References to Morningstar funds used in this podcast refer to Morningstar Funds Trust, a registered investment company with nine multi-manager mutual funds managed by Morningstar Investment Management. Morningstar Funds Trust is registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as an open-end management investment company under the Investment Company Act of 1940 as amended. Before investing, you should read Morningstar Funds Trust prospectus carefully. Investing in open-end management investment companies, that is to say mutual funds, involves risk. The value of an investment in a fund within Morningstar Funds Trust may go down. Morningstar Funds Trust uses a multi-manager approach. Therefore, in addition to market fluctuations, a specific Morningstar Fund's performance is derived from the skills of the sub-advisors and the allocation of assets among them. Diversification does not eliminate the risk of loss in a declining market, nor does it assure a profit. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. The funds within the Morningstar Funds Trust are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, and are only available to citizens or legal residents of the United States or its territories through Morningstar Managed Portfolios Advisory Service. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the funds carefully before investing. The prospectus contains this and other important information about the funds. The prospectus is available at connect.writeprospectus.com Morningstar or by contacting Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, 22 West Washington Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60602, or by calling 877-751-4208. Before investing, please read the Morningstar Funds Trust Prospectus carefully.